Hello, listeners. This is Brooke, and I am calling all memoirists. Every spring and fall, I lead some sort of memoir experience, and this spring's course is coming up starting on Tuesday, March 14th. I'll be partnering with Linda Joy Myers, president of the National Association of Memoir Writers, for six weeks of craft and writing. In all the years we've been doing these intensives, we've always been more lecture-focused or guest-focused, so we decided it was time to invite you to write with us. So each class will be focused on a theme, and there will be some teaching, but also writing prompts, or we invite you to work on your memoir in progress. So we'll be writing this spring. We'll be reviewing and giving you feedback on a submission, which we are excited about. We'd love to spend these six weeks with you. So check out our class, which is called Reignite Your Inspiration at www.magicofmemoir.com. Hello, brave hearts, heralders of epic truths, and those who risk everything, or maybe you're mulling over whether to do so. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner, my indomitable co-host. And Grant, we have a powerful memoir episode today. Definitely. Crying Wolf is one of those memoirs that, you know, it's vulnerable, and it reveals life and society in so many ways. And I was compelled by it right when I saw the dust jacket description. Yeah. And when I saw the pitch for this one, which came over the transom, it was just so up my alley because uh, I think about books like this one. Our guest, Eden Boudreau, has written a lot. Uh, and basically, it's a memoir that's very brave. It's a memoir that risks a lot in the telling and that stands up bravely when basically everything and everyone in our culture is discouraging us to do exactly that. So, you know, we had already had Eden lined up for this show when I was scrolling through Facebook last week and someone had posted in one of the memoir groups I'm a part of uh, the following post. It said, looking for titles of memoirs that drop family bombs, the kind that make us wonder how the author ever found the courage to write such unspeakable truths. And this post, as of the last time I checked, had more than 200 comments. And so it definitely inspired a long list of amazing memoirs. But it also got me thinking about unspeakable truths and how hard and brave it is to write books like these. And so that's what I want to talk about today in this episode is what drives people to do that in the first place. Uh, and also how writers who do so are both revered and reviled. It's mm -hmm. such a weird tension and paradox. And I think that there are always trade-offs for writers who do this because we just know um, that we've spoken to so many people over the show, you know, who have talked about that, like the reckoning, what they've lost as a result of sharing their unspeakable truths. We didn't have Carmen Maria Machado on the show. I wish we had, but she did teach for me last year and, and she was like, I'm not sure it was worth it, you know, and that mm. has always stuck with me so strongly. So Grant, I'm going to ask you about this because I know you've dabbled with the idea of writing a memoir and would you broach unspeakable truths and why or why not? Now I want to get Maria Machado on the show. It's um, hard. I know. Let's just like open call. Come, Carmen. But she's she's very selective. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, it's such an interesting question because I'm not sure if we know what we'll do until we're actually in that position. I recently published a book, The Art of Brevity, and it's a book that's not a memoir, a novel. So it's ostensibly much less vulnerable, you know, in some ways not really truly vulnerable at all. But as a writer... You feel vulnerable anytime you put your writing out there. You know, you're always open to attacks or critiques of some sort. So I just deeply admire those who are brave enough to reveal truly unspeakable truths. And 
and who seek that kind of reverence you're talking about, but also know that they're going to be reviled along the way. And I, I just talked, this is a little bit of a different take on it, but I just talked with a writer who wrote a memoir about her mother's mental illness. And she said she can't publish it while her mother's alive because she doesn't want to hurt her mother. And the memoir I've been thinking about writing falls in the same category. I'm not truly revealing an unspeakable truth, but there are things I'd prefer my mom not to have to reckon with in a public way. And one thing I thought was interesting with Crying Wolf is that it began with Eden's therapist urging her to write it, not for publication, but to heal. So I, th I think writing and publishing an unspeakable truth can be healing. And not only the act of doing it, but in publishing and putting it out there in the world, because I think what you often find is that you're opening up a door for so many others who have stayed on the unspeakable side. So you're giving them a voice with your writing. And that's actually part of the healing and part of the way you can deal with those horrible people who revile what you've written. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're all different in this regard, though, Brooke, and, and we all have different needs to share and different levels of bravery and different situations in which to tell our stories. So I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts since you're working on a memoir. Are you writing unspeakable? speakable truths. Yeah, I like what you said earlier about not being sure <laughs> until you're <laughs> actually doing it because I'm not sure, you know, or maybe I'm not sure yet. Um, obviously like whatever I'm writing is speakable, it's writable. And I don't think I have that kind of story that is, you know, the unspeakable truths, like some of the ones that were, um, mentioned in the Facebook post I, I talked about, but I am going pretty deep and sharing things that only my best friends know about, for instance, and I'm writing things that feel very intimate and close to my heart and certainly scary to share. And I think the strangest paradox about memoir writing is how it's both terrifying and liberating, uh, you know, and also just like imagining the idea of people, strangers <laughs> reading about your life and about the things that you've lived. And yet you haven't even told the people that you actually know or that you're the closest to. And I agree with you. I mean, I think about my mom a lot. I think about my son while I'm writing. And then I try to kind of close that door because I'm thinking more importantly about the other eyes and hearts that are out there for my book. So uh, it's it's a tough one. And I think unquestionably writers like Eden, you know, and other brave souls like her, uh, you know, they keep me both inspired and motivated with their memoirs because reading Crying Wolf for me was an experience of motivation, really. I mean, she has this beautiful and tragic and difficult story, very personal account of a rape by someone that she'd gone out on a date with. Uh, and she opened up to this person in the context of a polyamorous marriage. So of course, she's opening herself up to tons of judgment, which she shows over the course of the book. Uh, and then she'll talk about this in the interview as well. But later when she publishes a story in which she outs herself as a rape victim and someone who was raped specifically in this context of a polyamorous relationship, she's eviscerated, right? And, and not surprisingly, I mean, that's the culture and it's so hard then to stand in your truth. And so what I appreciate most about the book is how she owns that narrative. But I have to imagine there's a cost to that because she has kids and, you know, to write and publish a book like that is just not something that a person takes lightly, which is why we're talking about risking grant risking everything, perhaps. And I like to shine light on people who are brave enough to be able to look at all of those pointing fingers and be like, yeah, this is me. This is what happened. Yeah, Brooke, risking everything, reckoning, reverence, revilement. We got a lot of R words going into this. Um, <laughs> they're all very true and powerful. Um, and then, you know, when you mentioned children, 
And when you bring children into the equation of revelation, revelation, it really changes the equation or it can change it. And I think about my own kids um, who actually always seem rather disinterested in what I've written. (laughs) So I'm not sure what they've read, if anything, but I do assume that they'll read my work someday. And I wonder what they'll think. And I even worry about what they'll think. And, and, and like you, I don't think of them or of any family member or friend while I write because I don't think that that's the best creative place for me. Um, I don't like to write with other people's eyes in, you know, in mind, I guess. But I'm curious as I hear you talking though, what about that post that you encountered on Facebook? Um, and I'm assuming that you're one of the 200 commenters and, and I was curious what the books you recommended. Yeah. I mean, I had a really long list, so I just put in four. Uh, And Mm. the ones that I put in were uh, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu, Heavy by Kiese Lehman, which won't surprise anyone, and (laughs) uh, and Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House. Uh, So yeah. And I was also, oh, I guess I did put one more in there, which was uh, Blow Your House Down by Gina Frangello, who we've also had on the show. Uh, you know, but I was nodding along as I was reading the comments. One that came up uh, was Catherine Harrison's The Kiss, which got mentioned more than a few times, which is an absolutely incredible book where the writer actually writes about an incestuous affair with her father. And she just got raked through the coals for that book. It's it's a troubling and also amazing one that I, I recommend, although it's difficult. Uh, and then uh, Janine Ouellette, who we recently had on the show, she commented in there as well about her own memoir because she was sharing that it costs her and continues to cost her actually a lot and that she's had threats of legal action and other family members who've refused to speak to her since the book came out. And we didn't even get into that in her show because that wasn't the topic. But now I wish we had asked her about it, uh, you know, because the whole conversation touches upon like what makes some writers stay so stuck that they can't plow ahead and get finished. I mean, there's what you mentioned about I don't want my mom to ever read this, but then there's also like, yeah, these real life consequences of potentially getting ostracized or, uh, you know, just the fear of repercussions. Yeah. There's another R word for us. Repercussions. We can just make a little list. Um, I'm thinking about that often repeated phrase, dance like no one is watching. And it's translation to writing is write like no one is reading. And I believe in that, but I also think it can seem very flip in the situation of the writers uh, that you mentioned who are facing real threats by speaking their truths, you know, whether it's legal, emotional or physical or all the above. And I haven't been in that situation and I can't imagine what those kinds of threats would do to your creativity because it is a type of trauma. You know, you're, you're threatened. Uh, fear and anxiety set in, your fight or flight response kicks in. Uh, I don't think the creative uh, part of your brain is actually sparked in that moment. And I often say that I don't believe in writer's block, but I do believe that trauma and depression can prevent you from writing and fear can prevent you from writing. And that's why I admire writers like Eden so much, you know, because they travel through such a threatening labyrinth to tell their truths. And we need those truths. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why I love to talk to memoirists who've done it, and especially someone like Eden, who is a debut memoirist, and she's going to share a little bit about not only her writing journey and publishing journey, but also her advice on how to think about getting published, which is so insightful. And so I'm super looking forward to hearing from Eden Boudreau right after this very short break. 
Hey, everyone, I want to invite you to a writing event that is coming up, a somewhat unknown writing event. Um, you know, at NaNoWriMo, we're so well known for National Novel Writing Month that happens every uh, November that sometimes people don't know that we do writing events throughout the year. And one special event is Camp NaNoWriMo. We have sessions of it in April and July. And it's, it's just like NaNoWriMo, except it's a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. We believe that a, that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife, and a goal and a deadline is at the heart of Camp NaNoWriMo, except you don't have to write 50,000 words of a novel. You can come on our site, and if you want to write 10,000 words in the month of April, uh, you can set a goal of 10,000 words. If you want to write a poem a day or a piece of flash fiction a day, you can do that for Camp NaNoWriMo. There's just many different ways you can participate, but the core of NaNoWriMo is there. You know, we provide inspiration and motivation and resources, and most importantly, a community of writers to help galvanize you. So our next session of Camp NaNoWriMo is happening in April. So please sign up for it and enjoy writing whatever you want to write. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Eden Boudreaux. She was born and raised just outside of Halifax and in 2016 relocated to Ontario with her family. As a bisexual polyamorous woman who has survived her fair share of adversity, Eden's work draws on her life experiences to inspire vulnerable and relatable stories. Her essays have been featured in Flair, Today's Parent, and Runner's World, amongst others. And she's the host and creator of the podcast, Dear Lonely Writer, aimed at destigmatizing mental health struggles during the writing process. So interesting. Eden is joining us today from Ontario, and Crying Wolf is the book we're going to be talking about, which is her first book and a memoir. Eden, welcome and congratulations on this gorgeous debut memoir that you've written. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you and get to talk about Crying Wolf. Us too. Yes, thank you. And I just want to launch right in about the stakes that are present when you write a book like the one you've written. And I want to state for the record that it's so brave, so compelling, and very gut-wrenchingly honest. And you risk a lot by telling this story. So that's where I want to start. What was at stake? And now that the book is out, do the stakes feel different? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I talk a lot about how when I first started writing about my sexual assault, that it was a little bit of a selfish endeavor because it was for therapy. It was, you know, literally part of my recovery. And um, even when I published my first essay about it, I genuinely never really had an intention to go too public with it and to go much further. But it became this thing that kind of became like a light at the end of the tunnel. And the more people I had coming to me saying, you know, I had a similar experience or it's so good to know I'm not alone. Um, they were really big driving forces to push me to go full tilt and, and write a memoir about it because, you know, the reality is, is that like many stories that we see on the shelves, I did not have the nice, you know, closure of justice in a courtroom with like a, a, you know, a neat little bow tied on it with a conviction or anything like that. So going into it, I was very aware that there would be a lot of, you know, eyes on it saying, you know, well, why should we believe you? You didn't go to the police and report and for, you know, file a formal report. And why should we believe you? It could just be his word against yours. And, and also, you know, the fact that I was having a lot of conversation about the, 
rape culture in Canada, which, you know, I, I love my country and I'm happy to live here, but we tend to be very hush hush about a lot of things that might shine a negative light on us. And, um, you know, so I fully expected that that would be, you know, something that I would have to kind of shelter against as I was writing it and as it's coming out. And, you know, now I definitely am prepared <laughs> for that kind of feedback and, and for that kind of pushback. But at the same time, I have such amazing support of not only my family, but the writing community in Canada and, you know, my publishers and my agent that I feel like I'm much better armored to kind of stand up against that kind of, you know, pushback from any readers or critics that might come my way. Armored is such an interesting word for you in, the, in that situation, Eden. And I was particularly interested uh, when I read your acknowledgments that you talked about needing to write this book. You know, you, you say you never wanted to write it, you needed to. Uh, so I want to hear more about that because I think that's true for a lot of memoirs. And I've, I've heard people say that they, that they couldn't not write the book. So I was wondering if you could share more about your own journey of, of need, I guess. Of course. I mean, I was always a writer. I was always a kid who was drawn to books. I grew up in a very chaotic environment. And so books were escapism. They were a place that I could go that wasn't, you know, sad or scary or frustrating. Um, and as I got older, I found that I could create my own worlds to escape in. And I lost that for a really long time when I was in a different career and when I became a mother. So I was dedicated to being, you know, the best mother and wife I could be. And as I entered into this recovery, I was very kind of lost. I felt very kind of, you know, what is my purpose? What's the point of continuing to go on if this awful thing has happened and I don't have, you know, I didn't have the benchmark of saying, okay, well, he's put away in jail or we've gotten a conviction. So now I can move on or, or something like that. I, and, and so many survivors of sexual violence have that, you know, are, are in that space of kind of a limbo of it happened. Now, what do I do? And, you know, I was very, very fortunate to have a wonderful therapist who worked with me in different, you know, ways to kind of find a way to do more than just exist, to do more than just survive, to actually thrive in life. And that's when I came back to writing. And so it really started out, you know, in journaling and, you know, kind of private blogging and, you know, just kind of getting the, the words out of my head and onto a page. And, um, you know, then I came to a place where it was, it was a very low place when, um, I realized that there was very little chance of, even if I pursued criminal charges, there was a very little chance of getting a conviction. And I just remember I had this moment of thinking, if this horrible, awful thing had to happen, I have to make it mean something. If it had to happen to me and I'm still here, then I have to make it mean something. Otherwise, why did it happen? And that was kind of the real jumping off point for when I decided to start writing, you know, more in-depthly about the assault and, and my recovery and turning that into something that I could share. 
Well, Eden, the crying wolf part of the book doesn't come until the end where you're talking about this, right? Your goals and hopes for sharing your story. And you write in the book that you wanted to write a story that would speak for all those who had been preyed upon your words by monsters and had their stories dismissed as nothing more than crying wolf. Really powerful. So can you share about that experience for you, the crying wolf part, you know, I, I, I'm hearing you and I've heard other survivors as well talk about this idea that they won't be believed. Um, and, and I'm just curious about that title, crying wolf and how that came to you. Yeah, it's funny because when I first started out, it had, you know, many different iterations as so many books do of titles, but the crying wolf part was kind of twofold. One part came when, and and this is, I talk about this in the book, was when I did actually speak to a detective and, you know, told her my whole story from beginning to end. And, you know, after an in-depth conversation about what the process of reporting and charging and, you know, proceeding with criminal charges would be, she very clearly, very bluntly told me that there would be a 4% chance that I would even see the inside of a courtroom, let alone get a conviction. And that it would be years and years of my life of being investigated, being under a microscope, every single thing about my life and my lifestyle being essentially put on trial. And I just remember thinking, but I wasn't the one who committed the crime. So why would I be put on trial? And it was kind of this seed of, you know, realizing that survivors are essentially guilty until proven innocent. And so that was kind of a seed that that started in my belly of realizing like this is this is a different narrative than just talking about assault and just talking about recovery. And you know, then as I started publishing essays and talking more publicly about uh my assault and different aspects of it, I was fortunate enough to write for Runner's World magazine and their online publication, as wonderful and lovely as it is, does allow comments. And it was my <laughs> it was my first first experience with online trolls. And it was really, really jarring how people would read the whole essay and come away with oh, you didn't have a non-traditional marriage. Well, it's clearly your fault because you should have just stayed in your marriage. And maybe if you made your husband, ha- and, dit, dit, dit. and you know, this kind of creating this huge narrative around my lifestyle and not even remotely taking away the predatory portion of it. And so that's really where that came from is just seeing how vividly and clearly that narrative of, women having to essentially prove the horrible things that are done to them and prove their innocence when in reality justice system wise it should be the other way around Eden I'm so I'm so sorry that you had to go through that that sounds uh, traumatizing unto itself uh, just a trauma upon another trauma and um you know in in your memoir you write a fair amount you know about writing itself and and you know you write to capture ideas of course but you also write to feel safe and to diminish that trauma and you write about the experience also of getting your story published which i'm sure also led to the book deal eventually 
And I know, know that sometimes the journey of the writing is like a journey within a journey, and sometimes it's frowned upon in memoir to write about that because it's not always part of the central story. So I was wondering if you can talk about that, your decision to write about writing and how you saw that as central to the journey you chronicle in your book. Yeah, for sure. It was a choice. It was an intentional choice. Um, in the first few drafts, I actually really didn't discuss it that much. We talked about you know, having the essays published and what that meant um, going, you know, public on such a large platform and how it allowed me to be vulnerable in a way that I hadn't felt able to do so in my earlier life. But I really did not talk that much about the writing process, because like you said, I didn't want it to be a book about writing. Um, but as we did passes with my editor, Linda Prusen, we quickly uncovered how Talking about writing and talking about the process of writing, you know, especially in a really realistic way. I wasn't talking about this, you know, aesthetic cabin in the woods or sitting at a, you know, handmade wooden desk like Hemingway. You know, I really talked about what it was like to write as a mom, write as someone who did not go to university for writing. I didn't have an MFA. I didn't, I barely had enough money to scratch together to take a class at the library. You know, I was someone who was really coming up and teaching herself how to write and really doing it all on my own. And I was doing it because I felt like I had an important story to tell and that my voice was worth hearing. And so the reason that became central to the story is because not only do I discuss my recovery and the assault itself, but, you know, we go back in time and we kind of talk about my childhood and my adolescence and being raised as a woman to, you know, not value my voice, to be quiet in in situations where men are present to you know not speak out and make you don't want to make him angry you don't want to say anything that's a little too rude but you also don't want to be a little too flirty you don't want to be too intelligent because you might uh insult him but you don't want to play dumb and it was you know we're kind of raised in this culture of feeling like not only is our voice not valuable but we have to mold it and we have to shape it into a way that makes it acceptable. And so even though the, the media in which I used was writing, it's really talking about how sharing our stories and sharing our experiences as women is central to accepting who we are and standing up for ourselves in the face of a culture that would much rather put us down and make us feel small and make us feel invisible. That's powerful. And thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about publishing on an indie house because it's hard to get memoirs published these days. Uh, and you have this gripping and brave story. And you mentioned Runner's World, uh, which you write about in the book, you know, the Runner's World article that went viral. Uh, and Grant just asked about that. I'm curious, you know, to the extent that actually might have led to the deal. And what advice do you have for memoirists now that you're on the other side of publishing just in general? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, how do you how do you go about thinking about getting published if you have a memoir you want to sell? Of course. I mean, 
I always like to talk about an experience I had actually when I considered writing memoir. I went to this wonderful writers conference uh, called the Toronto International Festival of Words in uh, Toronto, Ontario. And we had these great conversations with, you know, best-selling authors. And I remember asking and saying, what do I do? You know, what, what's the key to getting a memoir published in this landscape? And now, mind you, this was five, six years ago. So even since then, it's changed a little. But I clearly remember being told, oh, well, if you don't have 20,000 followers on Instagram, no point. No one's going to publish you. And reality-wise, if we're looking at the big five publishers, that's the truth. If you're not Harry or Meghan or, or <laughs> Oprah, they're not going to take a risk on a smaller author or a debut author. So what I focused on was not only looking for a publisher who held space for the kind of book I wanted to write, but I made sure to do things like writing the essays, doing blog posts. I did work on my social media a little bit, but in all honesty, it's not what got me my book deal. <laughs> it it helped to definitely put me out there and, you know, so that there was some presence online, but it's uh, social media presence is so curated and we all know it's curated that I genuinely don't believe that's what is going to get you a deal. What is going to get you a deal or what is going to get you noticed by whether it be an indie press or a small press or even, you know, a small, you know, sister to a larger publisher is developing your voice. I truly believe that the time I spent writing essays is is what contributed to Hazel and Jay Millar at Book Hug seeing my story and seeing the value in it. Because when I first started writing, I was writing like the writers I was reading. So everything I read, I was kind of imitating their voice. And over time, as I was telling my story through these essays, I started to develop a very particular narrative style, a very particular voice. And that, I think, for memoirists is what is going to set you apart from, you know, the hundreds of submissions of stories they're going to get. And I also had a unique lens. You know, we we all have stories and so many people have stories about trauma, but it's what is unique. What is your different perspective on it that is going to make someone want to pick up that book and read it? And I think ultimately those are the the aspects that that made my publisher come on board. That is such great advice, Eden. And we, we sometimes uh, like to end by asking writers what they're working on next. But 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 this book is so new that I don't want to put pressure on you or assume there's <laughs> something in the hopper. But at the same time, you know, you've wanted to be a writer and now you're an author and you're an author of a particular kind of memoir that maybe lends itself to, to advocacy for other survivors and maybe even to other polyamorous folks. So I'm just curious about your approach to what's next, writing, advocacy, both, something else? Definitely writing. Um, I have always wanted to be a writer. It is my first love. So I will not be giving that up anytime soon. Um, I would love to write in the fiction space, to be honest, because, you know, memoir is hard. Memoir and nonfiction is emotionally gutting. And, you know, I really advocate for people who write nonfiction to really hold space 
to heal during and after the process um, because it can be so exhausting. So I'm working on, you know, a couple different little fiction projects, but I'm also dedicating more time and energy into my own show, Dear Lonely Writer, that, you know, is in, like you said, kind of in that vein of, you know, we talk about mental health and we talk about the emotional labor that comes with the writing process or comes with the creating process. Um, and I really, you know, I'm putting time and energy into creating a space where we can talk about that and there isn't this taboo and we can all kind of share our experiences and, and support each other in that way. Well, Eden, thank you. And I hope all of our listeners will go check out your podcast, Dear Lonely Writer, which sounds amazing. I'm going to go check it out. And, and just congratulations. <laughs> this book is really important and hugely additive to this field. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Eden. I'm, I'm a lonely writer as well. So I'm, I'm on my way to your <laughs> podcast now. Fantastic. We all get there together and uh, then we're not lonely anymore. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, this week's book trend is Barnes & Noble's big comeback grant. Uh, because a couple of years ago, if you had asked me about BNN, I would have said, and in fact did say, they're on the verge of going out of business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, here they are. They've done an about face in the past couple of years. And the LA Times recently reported that they have survived a near-death experience. And I bet you can guess why or how. Do you think they started to focus on selling books? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yep. Selling books. Imagine that. A bookstore. Huh. You know, because for a while there, you could go into Barnes and Noble and be like, where am I? Am I in a toy store and I, <laughs> or a five and dime? Like, what the heck is going on? So I, they've totally rethought all that. But also, and importantly, because I feel this every single day, uh, Barnes and Noble has shifted its buying policies. And so managers can now order and stock what they want to carry and they're not beholden to the national buy in the way that they once were. This is one thing that makes me so, so happy. Can you explain more about what that means for our listeners and hopefully our book buyers? <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically what it means is that Barnes & Noble, the giant entity of the company, used to buy for the whole country. And so publishers loved this because it meant huge buys, like they would take tons of your inventory. But for us, smaller publishers, that was always very hit or miss because it could also mean huge returns. So it's not all great when a retailer takes a large number of books because those are subject to coming back. You have to accept them and take them back. But now it's store managers on the local level who are buying the inventory so, you know, it makes it a little bit more regional usually. Uh, but I think what's most important is that it gives the store more control on the local level. And it also really supports the staff to get to know their clientele, which, of course, is a big and smart business decision. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting because I've wondered why Barnes & Noble didn't take this approach years ago. Um, 
you know, we on a fundamental level, we don't want our bookstores to be like McDonald's. You know, mm-hmm. we want them to reflect our communities and serve our communities and feel kind of independent and quirky, actually. And and I'm actually saying this a bit selfishly because I've talked to Barnes and Noble for years to support NaNoWriMo by hosting or connecting with our, our local volunteers so that people could could actually write in their stores. And uh, because perhaps because of this new direction, I don't even know, but I got a breakthrough this past year and we actually did that. We piloted a program where, you know, they're providing discounts and space and various things for our volunteers to host write-ins in their stores. And so this is all for me about connecting books to the community and it's just a win-win. So I hope that leads to, to, to bigger book sales as well. And so I'd like to take <laughs> credit for their success, but I, I know I'm not, you know, NaNoWriMo isn't truly behind it, at least not yet, um, because I know that Barnes & Noble would not be doing uh, well if the book industry itself were not doing well. And as, as Jane Friedman said in that LA Times piece, Barnes & Noble is having a turnaround, but the overall health of the industry is so strong. So, so that's a good thing that's propelling it as well. Yeah, but it's interesting what you're saying, because I think that breakthrough that you're happening is absolutely a result of the store managers having more control on a local level, you know, that they're able to say like, yes, we want to do this thing. And before I think they really had their hands tied and it's a big deal because we want to be, you know, having these brick and mortar stores, but online retail is pushing them out. And I do think people are starting to feel those losses acutely, you know, like Grant here in Berkeley in the past couple of months, two of my favorite stores have closed. One is my local pet store right down the block where I shop for all of my pets food and then transport, which has just been around forever. It's a running shoe and clothing store. Um, I was just really sad for those losses. And, you know, I think that we're starting to feel people pushing toward wanting to shop in person. I think that's part of the trend as well. And so Barnes & Noble was really kind of on its way out. But now it has opened 30 new stores since 2020. So I I think we're seeing that, you know, we don't want all of our consumer dollars to go online and and realizing that we won't have any shops anymore to go to if we do that. It's getting a little dicey out there. So I'm totally with you. And my thing that I'm sad about is that several movie theaters in Berkeley have closed in the last couple of years. So now we actually barely have any theaters around. And I never thought I'd face that in my lifetime. So I hope that doesn't happen to bookstores since, as I mentioned, bookstores, they're actually the rare retail space that isn't just about sales, but about community. And we need community now more than ever, especially around our stories. Absolutely, which I hope is what we're providing or something that we're providing this community to all of you listeners. And thank you so much for being with us week in and week out. We know we have a lot of loyal and dedicated listeners and more so I feel like we're hearing from you. So thank you. We both love that. And uh, we'll be here with another inspiring episode next week.